人形使いってあの正体不明のハッカーが警察だ国籍推定アメリカ年齢性別経歴全て不明プロジェクト2501人形使い計画確かめてみるぞ自分のゴーストだ人間が人間であるための部品が決して少なくないように自分が自分であるためには驚くほど多くのものが必要なのよ他人を隔てるための顔それと意識しない声目覚めの時に見つめる手幼かった頃の記憶未来の予感私の電脳がアクセスできる膨大な情報やネットの広がりそれら全てが私の一部であり私という意識そのものを生み出しそして同時に私をある限界に制約し続ける「わらべの時は語ることもわらべのごとく思うこともわらべのごとく論ずることもわらべのごとくなりしが人となりてはわらべのことを捨てたり」Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me, as always, is my co host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm not so bad today. John, how are you? I'm good as well.、Uh, and for the first time、uh, with us in, Heroic Pur- in the Heroic Purgatory podcast, we have a guest, and that is Mr. Brian Rue. How are you, Brian? Pretty good. How are you?、Uh, I'm good as well. So, is it, is it Mr. or Dr.? I just want to make sure. Oh, well, I guess, yeah, I guess it is Dr. Okay, and how do, you, how do you like to be referred as? Well, I mean, in my, because I don't actually have an academic position right now, so I, I don't use doctor actually that much in, in my day to day life. So anytime I can get anybody to refer to me as doctor, I'll, I'll take that opportunity. Okay, great. great. <laughs>、uh, so today we'll continue our coverage, we'll resume our coverage of 90s Asian cinema with the 1995 animated film Ghost in the Shell, directed by Mamoru Oshii,、uh, based on the manga with the same name by Masamune Shiro. But before we get to that, we have some bookkeeping to do, and we'll start with our usual segment of uh, uh, talking about what we've been watching over the last couple of weeks. So, Jason, why don't you start? What have you been, been watching recently? So, I. Watched quite a lot of films、uh, around 10.、Uh, on Amazon Prime, I watched Room 237, which is a fascinating look at how people have different interpretations of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining.、Uh, I watched Nicholas Winding Refn's、um, The Pusher,、uh, his debut feature film, which is a Danish drug drama that stars a young Mads m i k k e l s e n who's、uh, like a punk hopped up on cocaine,、um, and it has lots of violence in it. And you ha- I also watched、uh, the anime series Wotakoi, Love is Hard for Otaku, which、uh, it's, I think it's about 12 episodes.、Um, it's a sweet romance between six、uh, adults who have otaku hobbies. And I've continued my coverage of、uh, the New York Asian Film Festival.、Uh, this week I watched Tonkatsu DJ Agitaro,、uh, Hold Me Back by Akiko Oku. And、um, what else did I watch? Oh,、uh, Jigoku no Hanazono, Office Royale. And、um, reviews of those have been published、uh, all this week. So、um, just plug my reviews. 
Yeah, I've read some of those. They're pretty good. You're you're on fire. You're just pumping them out one after another. Yeah, it's like this is a golden opportunity to watch some really great contemporary Japanese films. So it's like the the moment's got me. Let's go. All right, and, and I've seen I've seen Pusher forever ago. I don't I don't remember that well. I remember thinking I've seen all the trilogy. Uh, but I have to confess, I hated Room Two Three Seven when I watched it. I thought it was just a bonkers film. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, some of the interpretations are a bit far out, but yeah, I think it's kind of like Kubrick inspires all of these crazy theories. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else? Uh, yeah, that's about it, really. Um, other than that, I've been listening to Kamal Nanjani's X Files Files podcast, and um, really enjoyed that, especially hearing from some of the writers on the original series, um, Darren and Glenn Morgan, very talented uh, set of brothers. Uh, all right. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Rue, would you like to share anything that uh, you've been watching or reading the last couple of weeks that you think is not worthy? So I've, I've, I have uh, two daughters. And so my oldest daughter, she is very much into uh, fantasy books. So we actually just finished watching uh, the Netflix series of Shadow and Bone which was, it wasn't bad. Um, and then kind of by myself, since they just recently dropped on uh, Amazon Prime, I've been watching the the rebuild of Evangelion movies, which I've seen the first three, but I am taking this chance to kind of rewatch them all from the beginning. So that's kind of the, the majority of what I've been uh, investing my my screen time in. Oh, I, I didn't realize they were on Amazon Prime. Uh, is it is the fourth one out yet? Yes, yeah, yeah. They they put uh, yeah just earlier this week, Amazon put all four of the rebuild movies uh, out there. So yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to getting to that last movie. But yeah, like I said, I've I've seen them all, but and I vaguely remembered what happened in the first two. I know I've seen the third one only once, and I have no recollection of what happened in that movie. Plot-wise, so I definitely need to watch that before I uh, try to tackle that last one. Yeah, I, I've I've seen the series and I've seen the you know the original movies uh, that were made supposedly to correct the ending, but I have not seen any of the new movies. I don't know if you have, Jason. No, I uh, I was a big fan of the original series when it first aired in the UK, but um, uh, since watching it, I've had no desire to return to the universe of Evangelion. So. Amazon Prime's presented a, a great opportunity, a prime opportunity, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might check it out. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the, the series, the original series enough, but like, I don't know if what it is that I haven't, like you, Jason, I haven't quite had that urge to seek out the new films that desperate, although if they are on Amazon Prime, I might as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I had uh, jumping the gun a little bit to our discussion. I had someone once, I had a conversation with someone who compared the ending of the original Evangelion series to the ending of Ghost in the Shell, which I don't think is accurate, but I suppose I can see some parallels there in terms of, you know, the vagueness of it. Uh, although I think Evangelion is way more out there. I mean, I think that there's probably, you know, you can probably make useful comparisons, you know, maybe, you know, to highlight some contrasts, perhaps. But, yeah, I wouldn't really say that their equivalent in how they end. And we can talk we can we can talk about that once we get to our discussion. Uh 
But is there anything else you'd like to share with us uh, about uh, your uh, media consumption, so to speak? Uh, let's see. Um, now, the only thing that I just uh, got finished with, I was uh, rereading Dune, uh, you know, in preparation for the for the movie that's come out. You know, I, I first read it in in junior high, which was, uh, it was that was so that was that was a while ago. Um, so, yeah, you know, it made a lot more sense uh, this first this this last time around. I remember in junior high when I was reading Dune, I kept. You know, seemed like every other page I was like flipping back and forth with the glossary, and this this time kind of going through is like okay, you know, makes a lot more sense from context and 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 stuff. But yeah, I mean, I you know I really liked uh, the new Blade Runner film, the twenty forty nine. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the to to seeing what he does with Dune. Uh, yeah. So uh, in terms of my media consumption, it's been a kind of a slow week for me. I've been busy with uh, work and uh, I'm, I'm currently in the process of moving to a different city. So, uh, so that's kept me busy a lot. But I did manage to start watching. Um, uh, there's an old show on Amazon Prime called Eureka. I'm not sure if either of you have heard of it. Uh, no. I've, I've heard of it, but yeah, I don't think I've seen any of it. Oh, it's a town called Eureka. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, well the, the show is called Eureka, and I think there was a spin-off called The Town Called Eureka. And it's about a sheriff and his daughter. Yes. And it's, uh, I think, Jason, you would like it because it has a lot of similarities with X-Files. Okay. It's essentially a PG-13 X-Files. I think I did uh, watch it at the time, but I wasn't a huge fan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm liking it so far. I'm, I'm several episodes in, and that's been my my only thing. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't had time to watch as many movies as I did, except of course, you know, the the Evangelion. I'm not a, a Ghost in the Shell and Ghost in the Shell two in preparation for this uh, for this podcast. But I have not I've not had time to uh, watch anything else. You're a very busy man. Yeah, well, this week I was. Um, so that I think that's it for our media consumption. Next we can. Uh, talk over about a couple of news items that I think Jason you wrote down so would you like to to go over those so Japan cuts starts next week um it runs from August 20th to September 2nd and uh it's a hybrid event with in-person and online screenings so um people around the United States can watch a selection of uh great contemporary Japanese films there are eight feature films which will be screened in cinemas, uh, in a cinema, and 21 features and 12 shorts which will be screened online. And this takes place over 14 days. And some of these films are going to be available internationally. So check uh, the Japan Cuts website uh, to see which films will be available. Uh, in terms of ticket prices, uh, in-person screenings cost $15, uh, $10 for members of Japan Society. And um, online screenings, um, individual rentals, uh, range between $1 to $10. And there's an all-access pass, which covers 33 films for $69. So that's quite a good bargain you've got there. Uh, in terms of the films they've got programmed, uh, you've got some real crowd pleasers like uh, Ito, um, which I covered at the Osaka Asian Film Festival. It's about uh, a girl sort of getting in touch with her roots and her culture uh, in Aomori Prefecture. So um, she's inherited um, skill of shamisen playing from her mother and her grandmother. And through um, expressing herself uh, via shamisen in the unlikely environment of a maid cafe, she grows in confidence. 
it's one of those great films which takes sort of like a a regional specialty and um puts a coming of age drama it uh to it and you've got Kyoshi Kurosawa's Wife of a Spy, which I believe it won an award at the Venice Film Festival last year. And uh, a lot of people praise Yu Aoi's performance as the titular Wife of a Spy. And uh, we've also got some classics like Hiroku the Goblin. Now, I haven't seen this, but it's uh, I think it's the second film by Shinya Tsukamoto. And it's got a lot of body horror um, sci-fi to it. And he's, he's the guy who, just to, to clarify, he's the guy who made Tetsuo the Iron Man, right? Yetsitsu, the Iron Man, uh, fires on the plane. Um, yeah, well, the, the remake of that, yeah. Yeah, so looking forward to actually getting to see this. Um, it's going to be given a home release by Third Windows Films as well. It was uh, recently um, given screenings in Japan because it's got, I think it's a 4K remaster. And um, the second news item is My Hero Academia is going to get a live action movie directed by Shinsuke Sato. So Shinsuke Sato uh, might be a familiar name to listeners because he's responsible for some of the better um, live action adaptations of anime. He did I Am a Hero, which is a really impressive zombie film. Um, he also did Kingdom, uh, Library Wars, Inuyashiki, Princess Blade, and Alice in Borderland, which I believe is on Netflix. So My Hero Academia, I haven't watched it myself, but I know lots of people uh, love it. And um, I often see like teenagers walking around with like backpacks and all sorts of uh, uh, merchandise connected to the show. I have not seen it either. I don't know if you have, Dr. Rowe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't seen all of it, but I've, I've watched a fair chunk of it, although I haven't read any of the manga. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I'm actually not, somebody who's really that big into superheroes and stuff although as a family we have been watching we've been catching up on some of the marvel stuff recently but uh, yeah you know even for somebody who uh like me who isn't you know particularly into the whole superhero genre or milieu um you know it's uh reasonably entertaining and it's you know it's got some really good animation in places so yeah, I'd be curious to see how that really transfers to a you know to a live action film. But is it a still running show? I believe that they're still yeah making episodes of it. Yeah, there was also a, a film spin off in cinemas last week as well, released in Japanese cinemas last week. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think that's it for the news. Unless uh, Doctor, you have anything else that we might that you think is uh, you might have caught in the interwebs and you feel uh, you you want to share. Oh, I can't. No, I can't think of anything in particular. So yeah, we're we're not a news podcast. I mean, we've, we've said this before, <laughs> but occasionally, you know, things that our listeners might be interested in, like Japan Cuts the Film Festival, it's available online. You know, we we will announce that, but we don't necessarily put that much effort into collecting everything that might be newsworthy in the Asian cinema space. But you know, if if something is falls into our eyeballs, why not report it? Mm -hmm. uh, and okay, so I think that's it for our preamble section. Now we can jump into our discussion. And first, we'll start off by, as usual, by a plot summary. So I'm gonna, I'm going to put you on the spot again, Jason. So would you like to give us a a summary of the film Ghost in the Shell by Mamoru Oshii? Yeah, so uh, the Ghost in the Shell franchise started life in 1989 as a manga by Masamune Shiro before being adapted into an anime film by Mamoru Oshii. Uh, the film, it 
uh, was made in 1995. So um, I'm glad we've got Dr. Brian Rue here because uh, he's uh, written a book about Mamoru Oshii. So he'll be able to correct us if we make any mistakes. Uh, I believe the book is called um, Stray Dog of Anime, right? Yes, that is that is the title of my book, Stray Dog of, of Anime, the films of Mamoru Oshii. Yeah, I originally came out in 2004 and then I uh, released a second edition in uh, 2014. Right. So, uh, like, there's a lot of um, questions I've, uh, I, I want to ask you, but before we get into the questions, uh, let's do the plot summary. So the film takes place in 2029, a time when technology and the internet have advanced far enough that nearly all of humanity is cybernetically augmented and able to roam between the real and virtual worlds. The story follows Major Motoko Kusanagi and a team at Public Security Section 9. We're on the hunt for a cyber criminal known as the Puppet Master, a prolific ghost hacker who breaks into and takes control of human minds. It soon becomes apparent that the Puppet Master is part of a wider conspiracy wherein another government agency has created an artificial intelligence which has become sentient. All right. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, so, yeah, with, uh, I think the best way to start our discussion is with uh, Dr. Ru and... Uh, might be a good it might be a good idea to tell us a little bit about yourself uh and you know how did you get interested in uh, Mamoru Oshii because your book if uh it's it's not just about Ghost in the Shell it is about the filmography of Mamoru Oshii until 2004 for the first edition I think and then I I don't have the second edition I only own a copy of the first edition I was actually reading it the other day and I was surprised that it ends the Ghost in the Shell chapter ends with, uh, well, there's a sequel about to come soon. And I just like flipped, flipped back at the beginning and say, wait a minute, the, 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 how early was this? I did not remember because I got it relatively recently, but I don't know how I ended up with a copy of the, of the first edition. Uh, but the second edition, I'm assuming it goes beyond that with some of his most recent stuff until 2013 or 2014. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah, and actually, when okay, so you know, talking about a little bit about my academic background, um, I so when I went to school, uh, I was doing my undergraduate work. I graduated with a degree in philosophy. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do there, but uh, while I was doing that, uh, I did study abroad in Japan for a semester, and so then I decided that you know I wanted I wanted to continue on in the uh, world of academia, so I decided to get a master's degree, and so um, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for that, where I got a chance to, uh, I was working on a master's in Asian cultures and languages, and my the my main advisor that I was working with there, um, her name was, uh, her name is Dr. Susan Napier, and she wrote one of the first kind of academic books actually on anime. Um, it was uh, anime from Akira to Princess Mononoke. And that came out in, uh, I want to say, 2000, so um, or 2001, maybe. Um, so it, shortly after I, I kind of started uh, working with her, she published this book on, on, on anime. And I actually, I got a chance while I was doing it. She, she let me kind of look over some of her, her chapters if I wanted to, you know, I kind of got a chance to proof them in, in some way. So that, that was a really great 
learning opportunity. But so, yeah, she was, you know, she, her background was in Japanese literature, but she was also, you know, did Japanese film and, and animation. And of course, you know, she was not, you know, therefore opposed to me doing any sort of work on anime myself. And so while I was doing that, working on my master's degree, uh, I got interested in uh, Momoro Oshii's works. And so I wrote my master's thesis on uh, some of his films. I, it was uh, it, that really only concentrated on, I think, the two Pat Labor films, Ghost in the Shell and then Avalon. Um, and then after I graduated with my master's degree, I worked on kind of submitting ideas to publishers because I wanted to kind of turn that into a book. And you know, the same publisher who published uh, Dr. Napier's book expressed interest in mine. And so I, you know, my master's thesis became the foundation of a couple of the chapters. And then I went back and kind of expanded it, looked at some of Oshii's earlier films. Um, I actually even I went out to Tokyo to try to talk to him. I, I had something scheduled, but due to at the time he was working on on Innocence on the the sequel to Ghost in the Shell. So that was in production while I was working on my book. So when I when I got out there, unfortunately, I wasn't able to actually meet him face to face due to um, even though we had something arranged just because he was so busy and, uh, you know, because. One of the weekends he was there, he kind of fell sick, and so he wasn't able to see me. But so I actually still have never met uh, Momoro Oshii face to face, even though I've written a book about him. But it was not for lack of trying. But anyway, so I, uh, you know, I wrote that book, and then I went on to further uh, study, uh, got a PhD, uh, and then I revised my uh, book. About ten years after that, to uh, after it first came out, to incorporate some of the later films. So I did then in that second edition, I did include uh, you know Innocence and uh, some of his other uh, later live action works. Also included Sky Crawlers, things like that 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 came after. Um, and yeah, yeah, I and I think I, as I mentioned before, I am not currently uh, in the academic world. But, you know, I am still doing, you know, a little bit of this, uh, you know, kind of writing, uh, you know, academically on the side a little bit. I actually just, um, the project that I'm currently working on is a, a short piece, just a, a small con- contribution to a chapter, um, but it's on kind of the 50 key uh, creators of cyberpunk. It's a uh, and I'm doing a piece on Oshi, of course, as I am wont to do. So yeah, and I'm still I'm still keeping you know dipping my toes into the into the academic writing world sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I came from and kind of how I got interested in uh, in Ghost in the Shell specifically. Um, yeah, I remember when it was coming out. You know, I remember reading about Ghost in the Shell in film magazines, you know, in the mid 90s. And I was like, oh, this sounds like a really interesting film. And I wasn't able to actually get, you know, see it until it came out on on videotape. And so I want to say I probably saw it first, uh, probably in 1996. I want to say that that's when it 
came out in videotape and became widely available over here. Yeah, I, I suppose did, and this is a question for Jason also in UK, but did it receive a theatrical release in 95 in the US or the UK? I, I could not find a definitive information about that. I believe it had a limited theatrical release in the UK, but it, I, I'm not sure about America. I, I want to say that it did to a certain extent. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. If, if it did, it would have been very limited as well. Which makes sense for the time. Mm-hmm. And I, that, 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 I think that's a great point to transition into the sort of another topic that I want to talk about, and that is the uh, this happens to coincide. And just to, to to circle back to our theme for the season, and 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 uh, J- Jason and I have been talking about Asian cinema of the '90s, and the '90s is this sort of weird and and strange historical period where a lot of things happened. You know, the the Hong Kong handover the Asian financial crisis and the the fall of the Berlin one, which was more of a Western thing, but it definitely had echoes uh, throughout the world and all of these other events that we've sort of kind of been talking about in in our various uh, film discussions. But one thing that also kind of happened is this uh, Western, not Westernization, but this um, um, exportation of anime from something that was a Japan-only phenomenon into the rest of the world. And you can argue that that started in the late 80s with Akira, but it was certainly the 90s where you really started seeing uh, this proliferation of anime into the US and I imagine the rest of, of the Western world. So I don't know if there's anything there that you'd like to add, uh, Dr. Ru or, or Jason. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll say a little something about that. I mean, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about Ghost in the Shell is the fact that, I mean, I, okay, and this, Probably depends on who you ask, uh, but you know when Oshi was was making it, you know he would not have said that he was you know had any particular uh, goal to expand Ghost in the Shell, you know beyond Japan. You know he was you know he was doing what he basically you know kind of what he wanted to do. At the same time, though, you know there were other as you kind of mentioned there were other currents kind of swirling around it. I mean, Ghost in the Shell, I don't think it's uh, it wasn't just chance that Ghost in the Shell, you know, kind of made it big, you know, the 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 big thing. And you, you know, you'll still see this to this day. You know, Ghost in the Shell, you know, when it came out on video, you know, it made, you know, the number one of the U.S. billboard sales charts for, for you know, for video. Um, you know, and like I said, that's that's something that, you know, I've even seen as a selling point, you know, in Japanese, you know, as recently as, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, them mentioning that in conjunction with Ghost in the Cell. So, but that it's not, you know, that, that wasn't a coincidence. It's not like, okay, there was this great film that just happened to do it. I mean, you know, there was international money involved in, in making ghost in the shell, what it was. I mean, there were, there were international investments and, you know, people who were looking at anime as, you know, kind of, you know, as, as something that could be a, a next, the next big thing. Um, you know there were cert- there certainly would be tensions between that and you know the content you know i don't think that oshi con- you know consciously altered any sort of content that he was putting into the film in order to you know make it more palatable for any you know markets outside of japan uh, but you know that's certainly something that i think the the producers 
of the film had in mind when you know when they were you know wanting to create the film when they were choosing Oshi for this particular project you know they 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 had a, a vision that you know this is something that could be um you know that they, they could go uh larger uh outside of japan if i if i could jump in here um i think that some of the international money you're talking about uh came from manga entertainment in the uk right right and um they had um different um fingers uh some of the head honchos had run, um, I think it was like um, Deaf Island music label, and they were able to bring in um, various artists to work on the soundtrack. Um, and uh, Manga Entertainment had previously invested in uh, Oshi's films, uh, specifically the Pat Lobo movies. So I remember in the 1990s, um, I first watched it when it had its UK premiere on the Sci Fi channel. Um, by that point, I had already watched Pat. Uh, labor one and two so uh just to sort of reinforce what uh dr roos said you know there's already an awareness in the west of um oshi as an auteur so to speak and um they chose to capitalize uh on his status by um bringing forward ghost in the shell yeah and i think that's sort of the the investment of foreign money and the sort of the not maybe like uh like dr who said not not by by the creative side they just made the movie that they wanted to make but by certainly the producer the intention uh had to be there you can sort of deduce that i i remember reading going on a bit of a digression i remember reading an interview with uh some producers of again akira and they said the budget was going of the movie film was rising so high because of Otomo's perfectionism and whatnot um, that the film before it was even released they knew it had no chance of actually making back even breaking even in Japan it was just it cost too much and there was just not the audience in Japan for that so they had it was sort of a necessity that they had to export the film uh, outside of Japan to to actually make their make their make a profit on it and i think that's sort of uh, where you know and its success showed that they can have these higher budget animes and i i would assume and this is a an educated guess correct me if i'm wrong that ghost in the shell probably had a higher budget than what the average anime film had at the time although i have i have no data for this i would i would need to uh yeah look up specific things yeah i don't have those numbers in front of me but i'm sure you are right in that assumption but it looks like the budget was 10 million dollars okay oh that's yeah that that sounds pretty high although again i have i have no no point of reference so i I don't know it's it sounds like a pretty high budget for a japanese anime of the time yes yeah especially for the for the the mid 90s yeah here's one question um dr ru um how famous was uh, Masamune Shiro in the West and in uh, Asian territories? Do you have it to know? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, he certainly would have been something of a known quantity in certain circles. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, the majority of people who would even have, you know, been into comics would necessarily know. But, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely had his own kind of distinct style that I think certainly, you know, made an impression. So, uh, you know, I 
I don't have a good gauge for that. I mean, my kind of uh, avenue into Ghost in the Shell you know, was was the anime rather than rather than the manga. So um, I'm not entirely sure to just to to kind of answer that question. So. <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to cut in, I, I do recall, and if it's been a few weeks, so maybe not quite entirely, but I do recall in your book you talk about that his um, at least his his work method is a bit unorthodox, was a bit unorthodox compared to other manga artists. Like he draws everything himself; he doesn't employ mm-hmm. artists. He he uses a pseudonym as opposed to his real name. He's uh, he doesn't even live in Tokyo, which apparently is a is a big deal. I <laughs> I have no idea. I'm 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 not I'm not a huge manga reader, so I wouldn't know that. Uh, but that, I, I found that interesting. That does kind of sum, does sum up again. This is speculation, but it sort of does give the impression of someone who's more about a cult following versus a huge popular figure like you know Akira Toriyama. Just just to throw a name out there. Yeah, I mean he's yeah he's definitely kind of he he does what he wants to do pretty much. I mean, you know, in recent years, you know, he hasn't. He's created some things here and there. I mean, he's done, you know, he's been involved in some anime, but, you know, there hasn't been, you know, a huge adaptation of, you know, any you know, big budget thing uh, that, you know, he's put out. Whereas, I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, if he was going to do, you know, another big sci fi series, you know, he would be able to, you know, get somebody to publish it you know, without any sort of hesitation. But, you know, that apparently is not what he's interested in doing. You know, he wants to kind of do his own thing. Which he probably can, since I'm, I'm guessing the royalties from Ghost in the Shell are, are you know, n- no trivial, not, are substantial. Yeah, I would, I would imagine, yeah, he could, you know, and I think that's part of it. You know, he doesn't need to, uh, yeah, he doesn't, he, yeah, financially, he doesn't need to do anything that he doesn't want to do, I would, I would think. And let's not forget that he also created um, Appleseed and also Dominion Tank Police and um, Black Magic M66. So these are like, um, I think Manga Entertainment had picked up these titles before, so that there must be name recognition there and <laughs> royalties as a result. Uh, yeah. So I think I think that's a good uh, sort of a, an, another good segue to trying to maybe un- uh, point out what the differences are between the manga and the anime. I haven't read the manga. Like I said, I'm not a huge manga reader, but if any of you have, what are some of the uh, major differences that sort of Mamoru Oshii's adaptation um, has from the original source material? Well, just to get the big one out of the way, it's uh, a lot less erotic and um, comedic. Okay. So it takes a much more serious look at Motoko Kusanagi's sort of um, action adventures, and um, she's aged up in the movie. Her, she looks older than she does in the manga itself, and there's very little eroticism in the movie compared to the manga. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, especially because, I mean, you do, at the very beginning of Ghost in the Shell, in the, in the title sequence, I mean, you see, you know, the making of the cyborg, and, you know, you, you do see her nude in a number of different scenes in the film but yeah especially in comparison with with the manga you know it's it's a nudity but it's not really kind of an eroticized nudity it's not sexualized at all yeah that scene yeah and we can we can jump talk about that scene because i i that is 
it's not the, the very first scene of the film. It's it, there's a cold open, if you like to use that term, and then it goes to that you know uh, making of a the making of a cyborg, which has been labeled uh, scene with uh, the music by uh, what's the composer's name? Kenji Kawai. Yeah, and which is completely mesmerized. And I would agree with you, Doctor, uh, completely that it's it is there's nudity in that scene. Uh, and of course, you know, it's, it's, I was actually in this most recent rewatch, I was surprised at how little nudity there is in the film. There's a lot of skimpy and skin tight outfits, but not a lot of actual nudity. And that's one exception, but it is not sexualized at all. It's, it's very, uh, biological and very also symbolic in a sense. There's a lot of, um, birth-like symbolism in that scene or, or conception-like symbolism, fetal symbolism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, getting back to what we were previously talking about with the comparisons with the manga, that, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, and it depends on the, the version that you get, but, you know, there is a version of the of the manga that actually has you know a virtual sex scene in it you know and so there are you know it's you know certain places in the manga it is it's it's much more kind of light-hearted in you know that you know she is you know kusanagi is uh you know she she cracks jokes and uh you know, she she plays around a little bit more than you know the than the serious uh, side that you see actually in the film. Yeah, it's uh, in the manga she's very tomboyish. Mm-hmm. In the anime, she's a fully grown woman who's um, going through an existential crisis while sticking to her job. She's utterly professional. Yeah, yeah. There is, and you know, uh, just to uh, to jump more into the film's theme, there is. What I would call um, uh, the film, the, the, the film. I feel like I, I'm I'm not an academic writer when it comes to film and or cinema, but the the certainly the film, and this is more true of the sequel, makes it's almost self-referential, or or rather it 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 has it has direct quotes from philosophers in it, which makes the research easy because you can immediately identify uh, where it's coming from. You don't have to do any deep analysis, although there's a lot of that, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, hey, they said something. I'm sure that's a direct quote from someone. If I can just find it, then I, that'll make research so much easier. So there is the the film is chock full of that, which is a little bit unusual for uh, I think what you would expect a sort of a science fiction action anime or any science fiction action story from the '90s. Yes, certainly, and and like you were saying, like and especially in in the sequel in in Innocence, yeah, I mean it, it drops you know all sorts of quotes in there, and that's something that's you know, Oshi has been doing in a lot of his films. I mean, he he'll drop you know biblical quotes and references in various places. Um, what was it? I was recently I was doing a thing where I was actually doing uh, and this hasn't come out yet, um, but I was and hopefully it will. But I was actually doing a little commentary track for a release of the film. Um, Nowhere Girl, or it was a, is a live action film that uh, of Oshi's that came out a few years ago. Um, but there is a reference, and there there's a uh, a model who in it who is reading um, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, you know. And so you know he kind of he's dropping in references to that, you know, just in uh, this in this live action film, you know, there are, you know, biblical quotes and quotes from other philosophers, you know, in, uh, let's say in, in Garmore's, you know, 
biblical quotes in Pat Labor. Yeah, so I mean that that is definitely uh, kind of a something that Oshi likes to do now. You know whether or not yeah, it could be argued uh, how much importance we should give those things. You know, is that something that he kind of likes to do? Just uh, you know, to throw a little bit of style, a little bit of flair in there, or is there actual meaning to it? Um, you know, I mean, probably a little bit of both. I mean, probably you know that has become you know his part of his style. So he. You know, that's what he likes to do. But I do think that there is often, you know, some meaning that can be that can be derived from these things. I think I think you could definitely the first one, I think whenever, you know, whenever they essentially uh, stop and talk at the camera, you can it's a more almost essentially equivalent. The the camera might the virtual camera, whatever you want to call it, animation might show something else. But I I, I think you could make the connection uh, in the first film with, you know, something, something about the overall messages or themes of the film. I feel like the second film is kind of more of on, on the style side of it. Uh, it feels a lot of disjointed and they even named the philosophers. Descartes said this and this. Oh, isn't that from Solomon verse two, chapter five, or I'm just making numbers <laughs> up now. Uh, it, it feels like, um, I don't know, just showing off for the sake of showing off. I, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong that there is a lot more meaning that, but it feels a little bit too on the nose and a bit even, there's even almost like a self parody of itself. Um, even there's even a scene where, when, um, um, and I'm, I'm, I apologize for jumping to the second film, but uh, I'll, I'll end it with this where there's, uh, when finally the, and, and Jason knows I'm terrible with names, but what is the name of the, Batu, okay. Batu and Katsunagi, is it the females? Toko Kusanagi. Kusanagi, sorry. I'm, I'm terrible with names. When they finally reunite in the second film and she starts philosophizing and he says, stop it, we don't have time for that. We're shooting robots. Uh, so, that like, it, yeah, like I, I feel like there's definitely some awareness there. Okay, but jumping to the first film, I don't think there's a lot of style over substance. I feel like every frame of this film and every little line of dialogue does say something and you can say you can maybe say it's a little bit disjointed there's a little bit of everything but everything kind of ties into this larger universe or this larger like fictional cyberpunk world that mamoshi and and the original manga of course so if i have created that raises question about okay what is the nature of humanity what is what is what it is that makes humanity humanity and in this world of you know interconnectedness between technology information if humanity do we have to revise our definitions or do we have to expand or limit our definitions, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, you know, these, you can state them in general terms, or we can state them in specific terms, but I do think that it is a very, very uh, well thought out uh, film in the what it is trying to say. In addition to being a very sexy film, in terms of very well directed action film as well. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, you're talking about what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, I, in after after you know watching this you know i mean i i don't know how many times i've i've seen the film i've seen it quite a few times um but you know after after a few watchings it just kind of amazes me how you know some people might say that oh she is kind of an and you know self indulgent filmmaker and i could see that for for some of his films where yeah i mean he gets you know, a little bit maybe too into something, you know, like you were saying in, in Innocence, perhaps. Um, but yeah, this this first Ghost in the Shell film, I mean, it's a very tight film, I feel. And, you know, I think that's... 82 uh, minutes. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that even the scenes where, say, you you see Kusanagi, you know, she she goes diving in. Well, where exactly is that? She she goes diving kind of outside the city. Um, she goes into the water and and she kind of is. She's kind of what you might say centering herself. She is contemplating what her nature, the nature of, uh, you know, the nature of her being, even that part, I think, you know, it builds what Oshi is trying to kind of get across, you know, it, it builds up to the climax of her interactions with the puppet master. I mean, I don't think, you know, at when you're watching that scene initially, you know, it might seem like, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a breather, a little bit of a you know. It might come across as a little unfocused to the general kind of thrust of the film, but I think it really works as as a whole and kind of you know uh, builds up her character to this, like I said, to this you know eventual climax and confrontation with the puppet master. You know that 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 her dialogue with with the puppet master would not have you know been as meaningful or perhaps not come to the, the the fruition that it did if we hadn't had those kind of previous scenes where she is thinking about um you know where we see her you know contemplating the nature of herself and what it means to you know be you know to be a cyborg to be a human to you know exist in uh you know as a member of section 9 where she where she ostensibly has a lot of power you know she is part of a significant government organization and you know she wields all sorts of cool weapons uh but in some senses that you know she doesn't have a whole lot of power to uh, you know to control her own destiny you know that where she is kind of you know she does what she does uh, but she couldn't you know, be herself and escape, you know, the control of section uh, of, of the government in section nine, you know, until she has this meeting with the puppet master. So yeah, it's, it's, it all, it, yeah, it all builds together really well. I think, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really good uh, distillation of some of the things that Shiro had in his original manga, which is kind of, you know, the, the manga is it's far more maybe entertaining in a way it's you know it's 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 got jokes it's got um you know a lot more banter um you know oh she kind of distills it down to you know i think what he perceived as the essence of you know of a certain section of of what shiro was doing yeah, and I'll 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 pass it to you, Jason, because I know you want to talk about the world. But I just before before we get to that, I just wanted to say that um, to your point uh, about um, sort of the climax and and how it gets there and how some of the earlier scenes are necessary. I think if you look at the story from a very traditional you know Aristotelian triangle where he said about every story has to have the rising action and the climax and the denouement you might sort of see that the film doesn't exactly follow that like there's a lot of kind of lulls in the middle if that's the right word for it where and then it abruptly goes to there's that scene where there's a very the the puppet master is a very a crucifix uh there's a lot of crucifix types imagery and then kind of 
falls down again and then all of a sudden we have that climax that seemingly come out of nowhere and that's where i can sort of see the comparisons with the end of evangelion where the the last two episodes are seemingly cut of an hour and out of nothing however if you don't look at it strictly from a plot point of view but if you look at the at the evolution of the ideas and sort of the internal struggle of uh, kazunagi uh, did i say that correctly kusanagi <laughs> kusanagi sorry um uh, if you look at her sort of internal uh, sort of uh, existential crisis that sort of goes back to, and again, this is another part where the film is very self referential They talk about, uh, you know, existential ideas that I think stem back to Sartre with, you know, the, the self as it's perceived and the self as it being the perceiving uh, entity and whatnot that, that she talks about right after that uh, swimming scene. Uh, and then if you follow that, there is actually a very traditional rising action climax and then denouement of the of the whole structure. It just it's not it doesn't necessarily happen if you look at strictly at the plot, but it does happen if you look at the ideas. And I thought that was very, very interesting the first time that it sort of it dawned on me that that was what intentionally or unintentionally Ashi was trying to do. Just to uh, agree with uh, what Dr. Ruth has uh, already said, which is that like, um, yeah, at first it feels disjointed when you've got this philosophizing and um, action. And then when it all feeds into like this wider um, theme of uh, existentialism and um, the the difference between um cyborgs and humans and um if the two can be combined as uh it makes the ending much more impactful and i think it um takes after a japanese uh four act story structure um i we've discussed it before i just can't remember which uh episode but it was um kishon tenketsu kisho tenketsu which is like um introduction where we're given the world of section nine and they're tasked with catching the puppet master. You've got developments um where you learn about the world some more and you learn about um Kusanagi's sort of existential questions. And then you've got uh Tenku, uh which is like the twist, uh where you discover Puppet Master isn't what uh he he was actually originally billed as, and then you've got uh Keku, which is conclusion, which is like uh the effects of what happens at the very end and uh everything about this film it's only 84 minutes but it feels like those 84 minutes are just perfectly used um i, I was really fascinated about the setting um one question i have uh is that is this based uh, i know it's based on hong kong it's is it set in hong kong or is it set in japan well i mean that's a that's a very good question i mean they don't specify in the film i mean i yes i mean it's unmistakably you know there's there's hong kong going there and going on there and you know that was something that oshi wanted to convey you know he saw kind of the density of Hong Kong in terms of you know its architecture and signage as you know kind of a external metaphor for you know these networks um I don't know if I would say that it was actually set you know in the world of Ghost in the Shell I don't think that that's necessarily supposed to be Hong Kong um I mean and you know and it isn't in you know, say the manga or you know the the other spin-offs. You know, like like the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, the the TV series. I mean, that's definitely set in Japan. So, 
you know, it's, yeah, I think it occupies a, an interesting space. You know, it, it is Hong Kong, but it, I don't know if it necessarily is Hong Kong, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm hedging my bets here. Yeah, I don't think it's ever specified explicitly. A lot of the characters have Japanese names. Yeah, there's talk of um, immigrants and uh, they've got Chinese names and all the signage is like um, Chinese or Cantonese. Yeah, I, I, I don't know enough about kanji. Like I, I recognize, but I don't know if kanji is same as Chinese characters. And I thought maybe it's, it is kanji or something like that. Well, the key thing is to look out for kana, hiragana or katakana in between the kanji. Yeah. That's how you know oh, it's Japanese. You, there, there wasn't any of that? I didn't see any of it. I, I agree. I don't think that there's... I can't think of any signs actually in, you know, Japanese where where you see Japanese specific characters. I mean, it would all be in, um, you know, in the in the Chinese characters or in English, which is you know what you would see in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't know Cantonese or and you know I don't know how to read in you know Chinese very well, so. Um, I'm not sure about that aspect of it, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem, you know, in that regard, it doesn't seem very, you know, Japanese. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's probably shows perhaps, you know, perhaps there, there are probably a lot of reasons why Oshi, or I don't know if this is also in the original manga, chose Hong Kong as a, as a setting for inspiration, but perhaps it shows uh, some of his cinematic inspiration because there's the same thing happens in uh, Blade Runner. Uh, which is uh, uh, William Gibson gets all the credit for inventing cyberpunk, but Blade Runner came before that, came out before his novel. So I just want to give credit to Blade Runner for uh, establishing a lot of what we know as cyberpunk today. But Blade Runner has the same thing where it's, I think, clearly San Francisco. Is that the city that it's set on or L.A.? I think it's L.A. Uh, but, L.A. But there's a lot of Chinese sort of culture, both in the original and the sequel. Mm hmm. Uh, a part of it, and I don't. I don't remember if in Blade Runner they speak uh, Mandarin or Cantonese. I, I, I probably if I'm, I might be able to recognize the reference if I watched it today, but I, it's been a while. Uh, but yeah, so I think there's a lot of that where perhaps Oshi was trying to sort of mimic that part. And there's also in your book you talk, uh, uh, Doctor Rowe, you talk about, and it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it for everyone. No, oh, well, thank you. Uh, but you talk about the relationship between cyber cyberpunk and Japan specifically, but also Asia in general, how there's this uh, fetishization, I think that's the word you use, uh, in terms of technology, where uh, Asia is viewed as a very futuristic place in all cyberpunk literature and film, forgetting or neglecting the more traditional aspects of the culture. And I think Oshi... Maybe unintentionally recognize that here, but you'll, you also there's obviously a lot of traditional elements uh, of like Jason pointed out the story structure, which is of Japanese origin, but you know the the soundtrack is very traditional elements about it, which is one of the most notable aspects of the film. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely with uh, with with what uh, Kenji Kawai is trying to do in the soundtrack there. Yeah, you don't get like a really yeah you don't get what sounds like you know a very modern you know, electronic score that you might think of, you know, as being kind of typically cyberpunk, you know, you know, it's not like some sort of, you know, big synth wave. I mean, of course this, 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 this predates that, but yeah, I mean, and you, and it's interesting even, you know, kind of the, 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 the back and forth that you have going, you know, with, with cyberpunk, you know, actually, you know, between, 
you know, Japan and, you know, not Japan, because, you know, I mean, cyberpunk, you know, it was kind of looking to Japan as, you know, as the future in some regards. But then at the same time, you know, cyberpunk then became you know, actually popular in Japan. Um, you know, it, William Gibson, you know, his his stories, you know, got translated into Japanese fairly quickly. Um, you know, and so, you know, uh, science fiction readers in Japan, you know, would be aware of, you know, what what Gibson was writing. And so, you know, they kind of go off of that. I mean, there is predating Ghost in the Shell, you know, we were talking about Pat Labor just a little bit in passing. I mean, there was an episode of of the Pat Labor series uh, that Oshi wrote where that specifically riffs on um specifically riffs on Blade Runner. It incorporates some uh, some scenes that are you know pretty much directly taken from Blade Runner. So he's you know he you know of course Oshi has definitely seen Blade Runner and so he knows about these things and so you know in Ghost in the Shell that's just kind of a further you know you know, adaptation, perhaps, you know, kind of a, a riffing on, you know, what has previously, what he's previously seen and, you know, has been working on. So, you know, and then you get, of course, you know, people like the Wachowskis who, you know, watch Ghost in the Shell and then want to make the Matrix. And, you know, you've just, you know, you continually have this kind of back and forth going on, but with, um, you know, influences and, you know, seeing specific parts and adopting them and, you know, seeing what you can take and what you discard. And yeah, so I think it's, it's really interesting kind of just, you know, this whole, this whole back and forth that's, that's going on with, with the, these kinds of things. I think even, I don't know if either of you have seen uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris. There's a, there's a, a scene there of a, uh, of a, a car ride through a quote-unquote futuristic city, and that was shot in Japan. It's just a, a car ride of to in Tokyo, a very long car ride in, in typical Tarkovsky style, but they went to Japan and Tokyo because, you know, in the filmmaker's mind, that looks like a futuristic city. So there was, de there was definitely that perception of Tokyo. Uh, from the Russians as well. But I, I want to ask a question for both of you. Why did cyberpunk, cyberpunk catch on in Japan so became so popular? Because from the United States point of view in science fiction, you know, it coincided with a personal computer revolution of the 80s. You know, Blade Riding came in 82, uh, Neuromancer came out in 84, I think, and plus, you know, myriad of short stories in various science fiction magazines and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, that was also the time where personal, I think the Apple II came out in the late 70s, but, you know, Commodore 64 came out in 84 and all that. So the personal computer revolution coincided with, uh, with the rise of cyberpunk. So it was, there was a very fruitful environment for cyberpunk to thrive in the United States. But why did it catch on so quickly in Japan? I don't know if either of you have any insight on that. In terms of like filmmakers who helped popularize cyberpunk, um, we mentioned him earlier, but Shinya Tsukamoto with Tetsuri Man and um, Sogo Ishii. That's a prime example, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a part of like that counterculture that was arising after Japan has spent like uh, decades industrializing. I can only posit that it's part of that. 
is it is it a, a a rejection of the industrialization or is it an embrace? I can see how the Tetsu of the Iron Man might be not so kind to it, but was that universal in sort of the in the uh, perception of Japan in cinema literature? I don't know, just in general in the culture. Uh, from my perspective, seems like a rebellion against. Maybe Doctor Ru would uh, have more insight. You know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, and it also kind of depends on what we're. You know, we, we've been talking about this this term cyberpunk, but in I remember reading in the afterword of uh, to Ghost in the Shell, uh, the, the the manga that that she, when Shiro he was you know talking about kind of what he was trying to do, and you know, in spite of everything that we're kind of seeing in. You know, in Ghost in the Shell, he didn't think that, you know, that he was what he was doing. You know, he would not have termed it cyberpunk. You know, that what what he was kind of creating. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, futuristic science fiction. So, I mean, he didn't think that. You know, I I don't think he would have put himself kind of in that cyberpunk category. Um, so, I mean, which I think is really interesting because you know, you know, when we're talking about cyberpunks, um, you know, it's it's kind of a you know, in in certain ways, it's kind of an, an after the fact designation. You know, we see this, and you know, we see the characteristics, and we we term it cyberpunk, but you know, that's not something that the creators might necessarily have been trying to do. Um, you know, I don't know if Oshi was necessarily trying to you know create you know something that someone might call cyberpunk in Ghost in the Shell. Although, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of what he has been doing, you know, even, you know, the, the stuff that he was doing in Pat Labor, for, for example, um, you know, some of that might be considered cyberpunk as well. And, you know, especially some, and then some of the films that he made after Ghost in the Shell, you know, so like Avalon, you know, where you're talking about, Kind of precedes, you know, things, uh, things like uh, Sword Art Online and Dot Hack, and some of those ones where you get some of the the, the more the the ones that came after that. But you know, where you're talking about you, you're kind of you you're stuck in a game and you're playing that game, um, uh, and you know, talking about kind of connections, which I it's kind of interesting how. Oshi's Avalon came out right around the same time as David Cronenberg's uh, Existence, which again, which is, you know, has kind of very similar, you know, not necessarily an execution, but, you know, some similar themes going on there of trying to, you know, being stuck in a game, trying to play it, trying to, trying to get out. And of course, you know, you know, you've got Cronenberg going back to the eighties with, with Videodrome, which, you know, that could be considered, you know, you know, maybe cyberpunk or, or proto-cyberpunk, you know, we've mentioned the body horror before, and yeah, and that brings us back to, you know, you know, something like Tsukamoto and Iron, Tetsuo the Iron Man. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of talking discursively, I guess, a little bit, you know, about this uh, cyberpunk label. Um, I'm not entirely sure. You know why it might have been a little bit more. You know why it might have caught on in Japan, other than you know that it was kind of recognized as being something that you know these 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 people are you know like like Gibson and, and particularly um, you know like Britain Bruce Sterling you know, you know who are looking at the future and are incorporating you know some of these Japanese elements and you know recognition of hey you know maybe they're onto something you know with our 
with our culture and you know kind of getting into it from that and you know kind of bringing in some of the other uh you know other influences you know and of course you know blade runner as well but um yeah, again, I'm just kind of talking discursively here. You know, my it's yeah. a long, a little bit of a long-winded answer to say, you know, I don't really have, you know, I can't pin it down to any one particular thing. But again, I think it's a, a you know something interesting to explore, and you know, I don't know if it necessarily can be pinned down to you know one particular reason why you know certain people you know in Japan in the 1980s might have uh, you know gravitated towards uh towards cyberpunk i think this is purely speculation but it might also have been just as simple as a new artistic challenge for the manga hey there's this new art like visual style that maybe we can play around with uh, instead of just the, the same old thing could have been just that and i think also from what i've gathered i think the japanese are uh generally receive well you know mentions for the lack of a better word of them like I've heard The Last Samurai is well-loved in Japan because it's, you know, a famous American actor, Tom Cruise, is, you know, playing a samurai and is in Japan. And we, you know, we think that's awful (laughs) and we call it whitewashing, but they say, hey, it's Tom Cruise playing a samurai. What could be better than that? I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it it is a, a bit of a truism, but, you know, in general, yeah, you're right that there is, you know, there there tends to be an appreciation of when other people outside Japan, you know, see and appreciate Japan. I mean, like I said, you know, uh, one of, you know, even today, you know, what, the 25 plus years later, you know, that Ghost in the Shell, you know, they still mentioned that, you know, when it came out on video in the U.S., it went to number one on the Billboard sales charts. I mean, that's still, that still gets mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, more recent example is uh, I haven't seen it, but I, did you review Jason the the remake, the the Ghost in the Shell remake, starting starting Scarlett Johansson? Uh, ever since this release, I've regarded it with complete indifference. It's it exists, and um, it's on. Oh, okay, it's on Amazon Prime. When it's free, I'll watch it. <laughs> it just didn't happen to be free before recording this episode, so. Okay, I was under the impression that you had seen it, but maybe I'm just confusing with something else. Yeah, I think I think the Japanese don't have the same disdain for that movie that at all. I mean, I've only heard positive. It could, could all just be marketing, you know? They're they're getting paid, you know. What's is Oshi and Shiro get are getting paid, so you know why why say a bad thing? So it could just be that. But I haven't read anything, you know, the the outrage that we kind of <laughs> experience with that movie. Of course, I I have absolutely no desire to watch it, but uh, you might be. I don't know. I don't know if there's any merit to it or not. I don't know if you have seen it, Doctor Rowe. Um, yes, I, I I did see it in the theater, and you know, putting putting aside the whole Scarlett Johansson thing, which you know is kind of its its own thing to talk about. Um, you know, I just you know you, you you can see where they took bits and pieces both from the 1995 film and from some of the standalone complex stuff and from some of the manga and just kind of threw it together. The whole kind of metaphor of you know the ghost in the shell, I don't think is. I don't think it's particularly deep in a way. I mean, you know, you can see, you know, okay, ghosts, you know, spirit, shell, body, you know, you, you don't necessarily need that spelled out. And yet it w- in uh, very early on in the film, they do explicitly spell it out just in case there was anybody out there who was 
questioning, oh, why is this called Ghost in the Shell? Okay, let me make this very clear. So I think that that's kind of you know the level at which that film is working. Um, you know, it, they they do a good job as you know, as far as special effects and stuff goes and i actually do own a copy of it on blu-ray but it is it's the japanese uh version of it i haven't actually watched it since i got a copy of it but i got got the japanese one just so i could because i want to see the japanese dub which has the voices of the characters you know from from the anime you know that has them dubbing their correct counterparts in the live action version um i haven't gotten around to actually watching that yet but i you know i do want to see that that. is that the one where kitano has extra scenes oh does he have extra scenes in that i i don't i that's what i've read that the japanese release of it has because kitano is so famous Mm -hmm. i don't know if you might have mentioned this jason when we were talking about kitano how popular he is in japan uh where or am I thinking about another American movie Could that it be he was in? Maybe Johnny Mnemonic? 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 Oh, maybe it was Johnny Mnemonic, yeah. The Keanu Reeves. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that he has extra scenes in the in the Japanese cut of, of Johnny Mnemonic. I don't know about, about Ghost in the Shell, but I mean, it's certainly possible. Yeah, I think I think I think I am thinking of Johnny Mnemonic. Although, you know, it, it is, yeah, like you said, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, so you you did mention a uh, and I think this might be a, a good, you know, a good next point of discussion. You did mention about, you know, what does Ghost in the Shell mean? And if it's in the Japanese, in the original Ghost in the Shell and in the sequel, in a sense, uh, they do mention ghost. And ghost is like such a, like a common term of parlance. Like we would say smartphone today. Like 20 years ago, if you said smartphone, you would have to explain what it is. Uh, but now everybody understands what it is or something equivalent. And in the the world of the, that ghost in the shell takes place. This concept of the ghost, and it's never fleshed out. Sometimes they say spirit uh, or soul, but I think that might be more of a translation thing than an actual. Maybe I, I don't know if it's consistent in Japanese or not, but it, it's never explicitly explained. You kind of get the impression that is this sort of the essence of what makes someone human. Like by this, in the second film, in the opening titles, it says. Uh, a lot of humans have changed so much that only a few human parts remain. Usually it's the brain, I'm guessing. But for uh, Kuzanagi, it's only her ghost that's remained human. Everything else is machine. It, is it, is it uh, personality, perhaps? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this sort of, like I said, it's this vague set that sort of forms the foundation of humans. I, I suppose you could write pay whole papers about this i mean it's been i i i don't have a philosophy degree but i did read a lot of philosophy and there's a lot of philosophers who have this concept who use this concept of ghosts going back all the way to hegel of course nobody knows it because hegel is unreadable but he does <laughs> he he does talk about this guys this concept of guys and I'm, i'll just leave it there but you know there's this i i think a, a much easier metaphor to understand is this i'm sure you've heard it in some form is the ship of the Theseus or Theseus? Are you familiar? Are you both familiar with that? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So it's just to, to summarize it for our listeners: you have a ship that gets, you know, that gets damaged along the way, and whenever a part gets damaged, you replace that part, and then you go along doing your business, and then, uh, but then obviously another part gets damaged, you replace that, and eventually you end up replacing every single part of the ship, and it's n- the the final version of the ship has no parts that were in the original version of the ship. Is it still the same ship? And I think you can maybe make the same argument for um, for the people, for the universe of Ghost in the Shell. They've replaced all parts of themselves with better. 
arguably accept this ghost conception. Are they still human? Are they the same, the same people? Um, certainly, uh, we get the impression that Kusanagi is not the same, but I don't know what I don't know what. Uh, it's a little bit vague because I'm, I'm having a hard time kind of conceptualizing and making making a concrete point. But what what do you think about that? What uh, what do you make of that? I yeah, it seems like her like her existential crisis comes from the fact that she's lost track of all of her original parts. What made her unique? Uh, she's got this um, uh, body manufactured by a corporation which is in league with the government and she's completely owned by section nine and um she's adrift from like her original personality um and then like that informs like her character's journey as she questions you know what she is and the original part of her the ghost is that even real because like there's questions over the data that people have in their brains if that could be manufactured or manipulated yeah and you can argue um a a couple of points there there's she talks they they have that brief conversation with um with that one cop that is almost entirely human he has a small augmentation right yeah presumably i mean he can talk like they all can all talk telepathically well not telepathically i'm assuming there's some radio transmitter in their brain or something that allows them to talk but he has something like that but otherwise he's mostly human and she when he asks Okay, why do you have someone like me? And she, she gives him a very utilitarian answer as to, you know, we need someone who can't be unpredictable, et cetera, and you're a good cop and whatever. But you can, I don't know if you guys got this about sort of almost a hint of jealousy on her part. Uh, and of course, he, like in the second film, we found out that he was handpicked by her specifically. So there's this kind of almost jealous reaction uh, from her. That's interesting. I have. I don't think I've ever read their interaction there in the film as her being jealous of him. But I, I kind of like that idea. I'll, you know, the next time I watch it, I'll. I want to go in with it with that kind of in mind because, yeah, that 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 sounds interesting. Because yeah, I mean that, that him being you know almost completely, you know, human and being flesh and blood. You know, that's something that she didn't experience or you know that she you know doesn't remember experiencing perhaps you know who you know it, it's possible that she you know that she did have that kind of or she did she was originally human but you know and had a flesh and blood body but you know something happened and i mean it, yeah and if you go into some of the other ghosts in the shells like the standalone complex and you know the live action film they'll they'll have different kind of origin stories for for you know where she came from i i have not seen the standalone complex i i i it's not my i know that or she was not involved with that if i'm not mistaken he was so there was an original what 26 episode uh first series of standalone complex and then there was an additional 26 episode series called second gig um and oshi wasn't involved in the first series but in the second series which i really like i really like that ghost in the shell second gig um he was credited with i want to say something like story concept or you know or something along those lines so basically he kind of came up with some general ideas for 
you know, how the some of the arcs would play out. And but, you know, he wasn't involved in it in you know, kind of a day to day basis. You know, he didn't do any direction. He didn't do any you know script or storyboards or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have to check that out. But continuing to sort of the same along the same point, I like what you said, Jason, or what you speculated about, you know, they she every one of them still has their ghost. But is that even real at that point? Because I think the concept you know, we 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 already said that you know the idea of a ghost is vague, but you know the the we kind of get the concept of a ghost as the soul, you know, the essence, the personality, and whatever. But I think like that is undermined. Like you have to, you sort of have to embrace, and they do. You know, that's why I'm saying the all the quotes that Oshi throws around the first film are not as self indulgent as maybe in the second film, because you do you can sort of delve into you know, the mind-body dualism, which started with Descartes and others and sort of continued all the way through modern philosophy, you know, is it, is, is, is the ghost that sort of the mind aspect of the, of the body? Or if you do reject that, then, you know, the, the mind is just a collection of, of, you know, material substances, your brain, probably. And if you replace even that, then like, you know, what's, what's left of the ghost? And then the, the, when the puppet master finally comes into the scene, he, he also subverts that, in another way where it says, you know, what, you know, memory defines mankind. So you, what you are, what you consider yourself as you're, you're the collection of, of all your experiences that made you who you are today are entirely defined by your memory. If you take that away, you're a different person. There is no ghost. And we even have that with the people that get hacked by the puppet master. Like, I think we only see one example of that garbage man, but I think you can probably infer that everybody, but you know, once he takes away their memories and implant implant something else does the ghost does the idea of a ghost even stand now does it matter because they're just you know you've taken away their memories that's that's who they are now they're a different person that is uh you know the result of these implanted memories not whoever they might have been originally uh so i think that is you know i think the the idea of the ghost is not is not meant to be as a given i think it is sort of an involving concept that i perhaps Oshi's trying to understand throughout the 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 entire runtime of the film and maybe the second film to a lesser extent yeah i like that idea that I, that, that I the don't memory know if that made any sense no 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 i yeah i, I like the the idea that you know in a very practical sense that you know, our memories matter more than this kind of ephemeral what ghost or soul or or, or what because yeah it's, uh, and we can see that happen with that you know with that uh, garbage man who gets hacked yeah, i mean this 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 idea that you know like higher functions uh like intelligence sentience are emergent properties of other more fundamental concepts like you know a personality is a, a an emergent property of um uh, of uh, your, your collective memory uh, or experiences, or, or you know, like linguists, for example, will say that intelligence is uh, is an emergent property of language, and you know, so I'm, I'm I don't know a lot about that, but that seemed to be sort of the prevalent uh, the the prevalent sort of theory in in the linguistic circles uh, or something like that. You know, that's why we have intelligence and other elements uh, animals don't because we have language uh, and whatnot. So there's, I think there's sort of that, I think that's the puppet masters. And of course, you know, practically he has to, because that's what he is. He is this emergence intelligence that doesn't really have a ghost, but he considers himself a sentient being. He is, uh, and I think that may be a little bit of clairvoyance on behalf of Osho, because I don't think in the 90s that this kind of technology was quite popular, but now machine learning and deep learning 
in, in computer science, that's exactly what they do. Uh, we give them a ton of data and they, the computer gets good at something. Of course, it's very limited. We can only make the computer good at, at one thing, but it, it becomes really good at playing chess, for example, or, or something equivalent. So it is, it is certainly, I, I think, a bit of ahead of its time as to where to other science fiction was in the early 90s. The film takes place in 2029, and the closest thing we've got to uh, my mind hacking is Facebook. Yeah, well, we we do have deep learning. I mean, that's some. I mean, deep uh, deep fakes. That's something. Yeah, well, yeah. oh, oh, that's a very menacing, scary. Yeah, it's rapidly advancing all the time. It's also uh, memory has passed down through DNA as well, which uh, goes back to uh, the inner conflict in uh, Kusanagi, where she's like, "I have nothing that's original DNA." Yeah, yeah, and of course, there's you know, in in reality, there's no memory passed by DNA, but there is sort of the mem the genetic memory where it's you know you have uh, you're prone to diabetes, which is a lame thing to pass down to, but hey, that's something that's that's a kind of memory, I guess. Or you're scared of spiders, um, or that I mean, could you know, obviously, there's there's a lot more complex things that that we don't quite uh, understand yet. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to kind of like ponder about the film. There's, uh, of course, this has kind of only occurred to me after reading the chapter, after rereading the chapter recently on Ghost in the Shell from your book, uh, Brian, but uh, the religious metaphors, which are playing in the book. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I have sort of a blind spot for, for religious metaphor. I tend to miss them in movies and I, they generally have to be pointed out to me. But there is quite a lot in the uh in the in the film there's obviously the the most obvious one is the cruci the sort of the crucifix like uh stands that they put the the puppet master the woman originally where they kind of cut that's a very striking image they sort of cut the bottom half of it and she's kind of like almost nailed into that uh, um i don't know at least it looks like a cross to me yeah certainly yeah you you've got that and you know you have um you know there are actual Biblical quotations uh, said in in the film, um, and I want to say that in uh, Doctor Napier's book, um, she talks about uh, Kusanagi. At the at the very beginning of the film, you see her kind of you know falling from this building in order in as a part of the operation that she's on, and so kind of contrasting that fall with you know, as, you know, as a metaphor talking about, you know, the biblical fall of man. And also then you've got other kind of rising and falling actions that are happening in the film. You know, you've got, you have the diving sequence where it's kind of an opposite of the fall where she's rising up from the water and, you know, is almost kind of meeting herself at the reflection. Um, at the surface and then get in the title sequence, you know, you, you have another kind of rising sequence as she's being constructed. Um, you've got, you know, uh, falling sequences at the, at the end where she's, you know, she's in this kind of dialogue with the puppet master and we see what is, you know, you know, might possibly be an angel descending um, you know, could be, you know, what is that? Is that, you know, some sort of visual hallucination that's going on? Do and there's that tree like that that is in the wall of that. Oh, room, right, right, right. Yeah. You, that that has a whole church like I noticed mm -hmm. like you could it's not a church, obviously, but you could sort of kind of 
see it that way with the light coming from the top and all that and the the murals that they they're sort of drawn including that tree that gets shot at yeah yeah definitely that's like the tree of life and it's got like the evolution of species on planet earth oh is that what it was like i i didn't i didn't really get a chance to read what it was written and you've got the bones of like mosasaurs and um pleosaurs that are getting shot by the tank and then like one of the more striking images one of the most striking images of the film is like kusanagi is on top of the tank and her position is on top of the tree of life as well so it's like it's sort of prefiguring her evolution beyond cyborg or human into something else and I, and I want to say too then at the very end you know she's she's the very last thing that we see in the film is she is kind of high up on the this mountain or hill you know kind of looking down on the city as well so you've got her kind of up on top above everything surveying surveying everything as well yeah although it would be uh to bring some levity into it it would be a lot funnier if she right as the film ended she said i'm batman Uh, so yeah, and it's uh, you know there's of course even even I couldn't miss the religious reference in the second film. They're they're a lot more abundant and obvious, and they even actually say where they're from. Uh, and there's even you know the, the, that little puzzle that he finds when he is in the room with the dolls and the puppets. Um, and the, the film is actually beat by beat very similar to the first one, the second one. It kind of follows the same structure almost, but you know there's that. Um, image of god that in hebrew that hebrew writing that it's like the tell of how he knows he's in a simulation as opposed to like the real world i don't know if you guys remember that that part but going back to technology a little bit you know science fiction is always about the present not so much about the future and uh, this was obviously a problem about the uh, Oshi's time the, the, the time the 90s where the film was made but it's certainly a lot more obvious today about our interconnectedness with technology obviously we don't nobody can hack our brains literally but you know I, I feel like they can do the next best things where they can hack our information of line and uh, online and it, almost every person in the developed world in the western world has a life online that that you can sort of wreak chaos if you mess with that line, with that life that everybody has. You know, you can't, you know, the internet, for instance, it's, it's an essential service like electricity today. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I think if you kind of make that analogy with what's going in the film, I feel it's, it's very, very much of a, it's very prescient when it comes to sort of the risks of this interconnected world that we live in today. Yeah, when I saw the scenes of the garbage man who's like uh, ghost hacked, it's like it reminded me uh, again just to go back to Facebook and like disinformation and how it can sort of uh, create an alternative worldview that uh, people exist in. Absolutely, yeah. You can. I mean, it's it's so easy to fall because every almost every service where you go up and read stuff online has algorithms that you know that display only what you want to to read i think twitter doesn't do that twitter just will display all everybody that you're spread i think I'm, I'm sure they have some kind of algorithm as well but pretty much almost every every kind of social media facebook reddit uh all these are curated they don't show you everything because it's just there's so much out there they 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 kind of they kind of almost force you into this into a, into a bubble you you almost have no choice but to kind of consume what what is within the bubble and you have to make an effort to actually escape that bubble and that, i think that's just one example of what how you know you can tie up current events with what the film is obviously the most the most obvious one is identity theft i mean that's something that can happen uh 
if you're not careful with your online data. Yeah, but I I, I like that idea that comparing you know stuff in, in Ghost in the Shell to you know something like Facebook or something like that. That yeah, we don't need somebody to you know actually physically ghost hack us you know to get inside our brains, but you know it, it can happen that you know through disinformation you know it can actually change you know our our you know our memories in certain ways and our perception of events and you know and if that happens then you know that can you know in some ways change our selves how we behave and how we you know interact with other people absolutely and of course it's not and it's i mean there's a reason why social media is addicting is because you know there's your your habits are you know this create this positive feedback loop whenever you sort of do something that sort of is pleasurable you get a dopamine rush and social media is designed to reinforce that that sort of positive feedback loop so you kind of keep you get a dopamine rush by doing it and the only way to get it again is to keep doing it so you're almost stuck just like you, you in the second film where there ha- where the What's the what's the name of the human cop again? Togusa. Uh, he's you know when when they're of course Batu can tell that he's in simulation, but but uh, Togusa can't. He's tracked, and then by the end of it, he's quite traumatized. And there's they even I mean it, the second film is so in the nose because the the gift that he gives to his daughter in the end is a doll. Like after all the symbolism and doll conversation that they had, he actually goes and buys her a doll. I mean that that's. That would be a bad choice of a gift, considering the mission that he was in. But anyway, but yeah, he's, you know, he's trapped in that world. And sort of, I think that's, you know, kind of addiction to social media kind of does. It's it's the same thing. You're not physically trapped, but, you know, you're kind of addicted to it. And it's sort of analogous, I think. It's, 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 it, it's, not, it's not great. It's bad. <laughs> Uh, not not to not to be cynical about it, but it is it is quite quite troubling. Yeah, looking at how current events are unfolding right now, and like COVID nineteen, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, and I mean we're all guilty of it. You know, I'm you know I yeah I'm I don't use social media a lot, but you know I'm I'm on Reddit occasionally. Oh, good Discord and guys, Reddit. guys, I just got a like on my film review. I'm I will be back in five minutes. I'm going to post another film review. <laughs> the, great, <laughs> great. Um. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what else there is to be said about this topic. But I do think that the, it's it's definitely, I think, like one of the strengths of this film that you can sort of adapt it. It can you, you can. There is this universal conversation about the nature of humanity, but there's also this, I think, more grounded, more practical conversation about the risks of technology, or, or maybe the consequences. You know, they're not necessarily risk implies a, a certain interpretation. So maybe just the consequences of technology. Yeah, it's uh, a lot more deeply thought out than many other um, science fiction films. It typically uh, has technology as uh, a threat that would uh, annihilate us, sort of like Terminator, so forth. I'll give yeah, I'll give my hot take that it's a lot more thought out than The Matrix. Ah, uh, The Matrix is basically a ripoff of Ghosts in the Shell. Uh, I, yeah, in a, a sort of. I, I think it's 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 uh, <laughs> what got a lot of people in the late nineties high. Or an excuse to get high. Uh, uh, and, to be honest, I tapped out midway through the second film in this trilogy. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, okay. So I mean, we talked. We talked about it. We, we talked about a bunch of themes of the film, uh, and we talked about a lot of. You know, we touched upon a lot of what the film is trying to say. Let's talk about. You know, the entertainment value of this film. What What do each of you think? You know, is it is it a good action movie? Is it a, is it a fun movie to watch? Did you get? You know, do you get? Do you get a little bit bored in the middle where there's like a ten minute sequence of just 
buildings uh, or <laughs> anything like that. To me, it's a perfect film. It's like 83 minutes. It's got the right amount of scene setting. So you've got this fantastic location of like this Hong Kong amalgamated with Venice. Um, you've got action scenes dotted throughout the film. Like I've watched a couple of Japanese films which are like two hours long and they've got an action scene at the beginning and an action scene at the end and lots of plot in the middle and they feel saggy. Whereas this one is like uh, at least uh, f- two or three five minute action scenes uh, located throughout the film. And and you've got the big action scenes bookending the film as well. And it keeps you engaged in thinking of all these philosophical themes that build up to the ending. And uh, Motoko Kusanagi is just one of the most captivating protagonists in cinema. Absolutely, and the, the you know the, the soundtrack and that obviously the making of the cyborg sequence is very mesmerizing. But also the final battle with the tank, I thought that was a really you know like the tension is there, very very well directed to use that. I, I don't, I, I think you can make an argument that the, the the word directed does is not entirely valid for for animation but we'll just use it anyway but i think it's a very well constructed scene with um uh, the the final confrontation with the tank i don't know what uh, what you think of the film's entertainment entertainment value dr Ru. uh yeah i mean i've you know i've seen this film i don't know how many times i've seen it quite quite a few times and there's always something there's always something to be seen you know something something new something you know different that kind of catches my eye you know when i'm watching it now you know i know the general beats how things progress um but yeah there's always you know there there are always new details i think that i can kind of find in there so it is it's very rich in that regard um you know just every scene every every shot has something that you know has something to recommend it i feel um but yeah i mean but even if you're not kind of interested in all that and you want to go into it with just kind of an entertainment value i mean i think that that's that that's there as well and i think that that's one of the reasons why you know it did as well as it did because you do have it can play to both kind of you know with the philosophical stuff you know it can you know certainly it can play to you know an art house crowd um you know you you can go deep in on it but you do also just have this you know you've got the surface surface level action that is you know executed very well and so if you want to just kind of go in for you know a late night screening of an entertaining action film, you can watch this as well. So, I mean, I think, you know, that that's one of the reasons it, you know, the film works as well as it does is because, you know, it is operating on, on multiple levels like that. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, but I've often thought the same of, you know, Robocop or um, what's the other one Verhoeven did? Uh, like Total Recall? Uh, Starship Troopers. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the both films are, you know, like they have a lot of, you know, uh, um, th- deeper themes that you can explore. But even if you completely ignore those, it's still a badass action movie that you can just sit back and enjoy. <laughs> um, but yeah, and of course, uh, like you said, the film was received pretty well at the time, uh, both you know, in terms of popular reception, but also critical reception. And I think, Jason, you wrote down some awards that the film has received uh, received at the time of its release. Well, it, uh, I got these from IMDb. So uh, in terms of the Annies, it was nominated for many awards, but it's up against Toy Story, 
at the time, so he didn't uh-huh. win any. <laughs> but um, yes, uh, at the Fanta Sp- Fanta Sporto uh, 1987 festival, it won um, International Fantasy Film Award special mention. Uh, it won a uh, special mention at Gerard Meur Film Festival, um, and uh, it was winner of Best Theatrical Film at World Animation Celebration, uh, nineteen eighty seven, and uh, Best Director uh, for a Theatrical Feature Film. All right, and I, I don't know. We talked about popular reception in Japan. I don't know, Doctor Rui, if you have any more information about its critical reception in Japan, whether or not it was you know, received highly by critics. I can't imagine it not being fairly well received, especially, you know, the kind of, especially, uh, I think Japanese, the Japanese critical community has not been as dismissive of animation as I think the Western community has been. Of course, we respect animation now, I think, but I think there was a time where generally in in the US, animation was viewed as as a more inferior art form. Or for children, or whatever, and I, I don't think it was too long ago. Popular, you know, acceptance of, of animation does seem to be kind of on the rise. I mean, you know, you just need to look at uh, um, the con that that uh, the latest uh, Mamoru Hosoda film uh, screened at, and I think they said they got what like a fourteen minute standing ovation after that. So it's a bell, bell, yeah. Uh, what was the uh, a film that was released one or two years ago? They're also about two people who can communicate with each other from a distance. My name? Your name. Your name. Kimi no Nawa. Your name. That was also very, very well received in, in international circles. Uh, I had not heard of this recent one by Hosoda. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that it, it uh, got its premiere at, at Econ, and then... I- I mean, I'm sure it's it's coming out, you know, eventually. I don't know if it's received its domestic release in Japan yet or not. I think it had its uh, premiere at Cannes the day before its domestic release in Japan. Okay. Oh, we did talk about this when we talked about, like, a news section a couple of episodes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You sent me a clip of the 40-minute ovation. I should have remembered that. Oh, yeah. I should have remembered that. And, <laughs> anyway. Okay, so, we, I mean, we talked about a bunch of things. Is there anything else that either of you feel we kind of have left uh, out of the discussion that we should mention about Ghost in the Shell or everything else that we might have talked about? Uh, what's the best uh, uh, sort of sequel or spin-off from this original manga, then, aside from this movie? I've only seen the two films, so I, I can't say, but I'll let Dr. Ru answer that. Well, I mean, I do... Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I I do have a special place in my heart for for uh, Ghost in the Shell too, for for Innocence, for that. Um, just I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a weird film, but you know, I I just really like it just because it's it does what it really wants to do, um, and it's not afraid to kind of be odd and throw in all these you know. Uh, philosophical illusions and things of that nature um my favorite kind of ghost in the shell you know branching off from from the original film um i do really like that second season of the tv series ghost in the shell standalone complex second gig um it deals a lot more with politics than with kind of philosophy in that regard but 
I think it's 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 really fascinating, and I think it's done really well. Um, yeah, just as far as its uh, execution goes, it's you know kind of top notch. You know, as far as you know, television animation goes, you know, that's kind of one of the one of the pinnacles of it for me. That that second season of the of, of standalone complex. Are are you aware if they're streaming anywhere, at least in the U.S.? Oh, uh, no, I'm pretty sure it's not streaming in the U.S. I don't know if it's uh... – and that's, and that's the thing, too. I think it got, like, I want to say a couple of years ago, it got a, a Blu-ray release that was, you know, a little bit substandard in the U.S. I think that the U.K. Blu-ray release is much better, but I – don't actually have a copy of that but from what i've heard from people in the know like if yeah if, if you're looking for something to pick up you know for for standalone complex both both the first and second seasons you know if you can find a copy of of the uk release um i mean there have also been other releases in other areas as well i'm not sure they're the, the quality of those but i mean i know that there have been you know recent uh, korean releases and i think that the japanese releases usually have um they usually have the dubs on them i don't know if they have if you can watch it with you know in the original japanese with subtitles because sometimes they're sometimes some of these releases are, are funny about that you know they'll release it with uh you know ju- with an english dub but you know no, no subtitles or something like that i know that i saw it the standalone i don't know if it was season one or season two but i saw standalone complex i think three years ago it popped up on hulu I don't think it's there anymore, but I know that it was. Uh, so, I mean, Crunchyroll might have. I, I'm not surprised to that, but that might be a place to look. I, I know, I know that it's not on Crunchyroll. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That's uh, just to, to add to your sort of your comments about the sequel, Innocence. There's, you know, I, I I've watched the dubbed version for both. I've seen the sub version once, but I most of the, and I've seen both of these movies quite a few times. Uh, and it's mostly been the dub version, and I think this is an example of an anime that's dubbed well. But I have to say, the, I think the voice acting and the dubbing in general is better in the second one than it is in the first one. However, I think one thing that kind of, I think, bothers me a little bit in the sequel is that it has this kind of strange mix of CGI and what looks like you know traditional 2D animation. It might have, it might all be in comp- done in computers. I don't know, but it looks there's almost like two distinct styles that are kind of intermingled in the film. Yeah, well, have you seen, you know, not not Innocence, but have you seen Ghost in the Shell 2.0? I, yes, and I, I, I don't like that copy. <laughs> that, I think that, that has the same thing where they have some 2D and some 3D or like CGI looking animation where they, it's kind of a remaster, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really don't like the scenes where they totally redid things in, you know, just with the, with the CG models. I don't think that that is executed you know as, as well as it could be i just i mean i guess what i want to say I don't, I don't think it meshes well with some of the other scenes but there are parts of, of 2.0 that i do actually like i mean i i think that because they adjusted some of the colors to make it more along the lines of what we see in innocence and they did some things where they 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 changed up some of the sound a little bit, um, some of the sound effects uh, punched them up a little bit. And I, I I do like some some of the things that are going on in 2.0. But yeah, overall, just you know, yeah, the scenes that they where they completely replaced everything and redid it with CG models. Um, I don't think, yeah, I just don't think it meshes well. 
Yeah, I, th- I think also the naming of that might be unfortunate because I'm sure everybody who like stumbles on it might think it's the sequel and it's not the sequel. I think I think that that's, that's certainly what I thought when I saw it, and I think that also was on Hulu 2.0. And I thought, okay, the sequel, I'll watch this again. And but it turns out, no, it's not the sequel. Is this uh, new thing? At first, I thought it was a new film that I was not aware of. But then I realized quickly, no, it's just the first one remade. Yeah. All right. So I think this is a good point to end our discussion. Uh, so, uh, Doctor Bro, before we close, is there anything you'd like to plug? You know, your social media, any websites where where can people follow you, etc. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So as far as social media goes, my uh, the main place that I hang out is probably Twitter. And if you want to find me, I'm just on there at my name, Brian Rue, just at B-R-I-A-N-R-U-H. I'm very creative like that. And yeah, if you're interested in more Ghost in the Shell, uh, certainly you can check out my book. Again, it's called uh, Stray Dog of, of Anime, the films of Mamoru Oshii. And you sh- it you can find it both in ebook version and paperback version. You know, shouldn't be shouldn't be terribly expensive. It's not one of those uh, really pricey academic books. And I, I I highly recommend it. I think it's a fantastic book. Even though I haven't read the second edition, I'm I'm sure it's as great as the first edition. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm I'm sure it is as well. Um. All right, Jason. Anything anything you'd like to close with? Yep. Uh, hope everybody uh, enjoyed this episode of Heroic Purgatory. Uh, please check out uh, social media links. Which will be in the description as usual. Yep. And uh, keep watching Asian films. And uh, if you have any suggestions or comments about uh, films we should be watching or films that you have watched, uh, yeah, let us know. All right. So that's that's it uh, for this episode of Heroic Purgatory. We, we've not quite decided what will be the next episode. We'll be sure to announce that on social media. Otherwise, uh, have a great time watching. Hopefully you'll check out Ghost in the Shell if you haven't done in a long time. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks.